I'd like to uh, read, I want to read to you a verse and then ask you, well, let me ask you to turn to Galatians 4, if you've got a Bible there in front of you, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Um, I want to read something else. I want to read you the prophecy about where where the uh, Messiah would be born from the book of Micah. Just listen to this. Uh, it, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And then over in Galatians chapter 4, We have these words beginning in verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are, now no, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. God has perfect timing. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 21, the Bible tells us the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Um, when we uh, look back at history, we look at national and even international and world events and affairs, it can be very confusing. Where is God in all of this? Uh, what does all of this mean? How, do these, how will these days be looked back upon in the future? And then if we look at the things that happen in our own lives that often don't seem to make any sense, uh, or they certainly don't bring joy at times. We may think, how does, how does this fit? Uh, what is God doing? But the Bible tells us that God sovereignly rules over the affairs of all people. And he exalts some and he humbles others. And perhaps this is seen no clearer, at least in my estimation, uh, than the timing of the birth of Christ. Because as we look at the type of preparation that God made for the coming of his son, most people think about Mary and Joseph and um, what happened there at the birth of Christ. But I like to go back and see how God orchestrated, even manipulated entire civilizations leading up in preparation for the coming of Christ. Now, uh, uh, about a year ago in one of our worship services, I brought some of this, uh, some of this uh, material about just how we we've come to have our calendar. And I want to give you some things to think about today with my hopes that as you look at a calendar, not only today but in the future, it will make you think about uh, the preparation of, of the coming of Christ. Uh, what month is it right now? Tell me. It's, it's December. And uh, it's called December because it is which month of the year? Twelve. Right. Are you sure? Uh, then why is it called December when they say means 10th, decade, 10th? Why would you call a month 10th a month when it's the 12th? Well, uh, 
our calendar is rooted uh, in a number of different ways that we used to measure time in the past. Uh, the ancient Roman calendar, of which some of our calendar is based, was originally set up in 713 B.C. I mean, that long ago, 713 B.C. And that calendar started with March. It started with March. You might say, why March? What about the 60 days before that? Well, those 60 days were considered so bleak, so miserable, they decided not to name them, just to leave those out. So they started with March, and it was named after the god Mars. Uh, and then came April, named after Aprilis, which may mean to open as buds open. Then May was named after the goddess of fertility. June after Juno, which was the patron goddess of marriage. Maybe that's why we have so many weddings in June. And then they ran out of names. So they named the fifth month Aquilus, and then Sextilus, which is six, and then September, seventh, October, October is eighth, Novum is ninth, and then they said December is the tenth month. Now, that's what it was in 713, before 713 B.C. Now, then there was a king back there, and from what I read, this is, this is highly conjectured. But according to uh, that, the king's name was King Numa Pompilius. I'm going to hand out a test before we leave here today and see if you remember. Supposedly, he came, out with, came up with this new calendar. And the new calendar had 355 days in it. And he decided to call the first month, first period, January after Janus, God of the doorway, because that, that time period opens the door for the rest of the, of the year. Uh, and then they had a purification festival the next time. Purification is Februum, so they named that February, and that's how we got those names, um, January, February. And there were 355 days in the calendar, <clears throat> but it really didn't work. It just didn't work. And so in 46 B.C., Julius Caesar decided to bring the calendar more into line with what was actual that would be consistent from year to year. And so he came up with a calendar, and it's called, and you know this, what, do you know what that calendar was called? The Julian, right, the Julian calendar. And it had 365 point two five days in it. That's the Julian calendar. Well, who was Julius Caesar? You know, he was a Roman. In uh, 49 B.C., he decided he did not like the idea of a republic. He wanted to rule the whole territory. He wanted a monarchy. And so in order to cause that to come about, he started a civil war. He won the civil war. And after that, after he won it, he declared himself to be dictator in perpetuity. He would be the monarch, the king, the dictator over all of Rome and over all of its territories. Now, that was in 49 B.C. In 46 B.C., three years later, what I just mentioned to you, he came up with this Julian calendar, and that was put into effect in 45 B.C. Now, something happened in 44 B.C. to Julius Caesar. And what happened to him? Yeah, he was assassinated. March 15th, 44 B.C., he's murdered 
um, by some of the senators led by Cassius and Brutus. They did not want a uh, monarchy. They did not want a dictatorship. They wanted a republic. Um, <clears throat> so they killed Julius Caesar. And they thought that would be the end of it, that they could then take over and return, set up a republic with representatives being elected by the people. Uh, but there was a problem. And the problem was that Julius Caesar had left a will. And when the will was read, he had left everything to his heir. Now, <clears throat> Mark Anthony was hoping that he was the heir, but when the will was read, the heir was Octavian. Octavian, whom Julius Caesar had adopted. Uh, he was actually Caesar's great nephew, but Julius Caesar uh, had adopted him as his son, so he got the empire. Well, Cassius and Brutus did not take too kindly to that, so they decided they would round up some troops and fight. And Mark Anthony threw in, he partnered off with Octavian. So here are these two young men, Octavian and Mark Anthony, uh, basically against Brutus and Cassius. And so they have this huge battle in Philippi, our letter to the Philippian church at Philippi. And uh, Cassius and Brutus are killed in the battle, and Mark Anthony and Octavian win. And so after it's over, Octavian goes back to Rome, <coughs> where he's going to rule, and Mark Anthony, he takes off to Alexandria, Egypt. Now, why did he go to Alexandria? Who was there? <laughs> we may not know much about oral history, but everybody knows that. Everybody knows about Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. So he's madly in love with Cleopatra. Julius Caesar had married Cleopatra, and he had had a baby by her. Well, now that Julius Caesar is dead, he's out of the picture, <coughs> Mark Anthony goes, and he marries Cleopatra, and he declares her to be the queen of kings. And her son by Julius Caesar, he declares Mark Anthony declares him to be the king of kings. And then he has three children by Cleopatra, right in a row. And he names them as rulers of half of the Roman Empire, these three kids that, that he had by Cleopatra. Well, that may seem good to Mark Anthony, but as word gets back to Rome, Octavian is furious because he thinks he's the head of the Roman Empire. So he gets an army together, Mark Anthony gets an army together, and they have this huge, huge battle on the Aeonian Sea, um, there off of, of Greece. This huge battle, it's one of the most important battles in the history of the world, and it's called the battle, well, I mean, y'all are teachers, it's called the Battle of what, you know? Actium, the Battle of Actium, it was in 31 B.C., uh, Caesar had died in 44, so it's 13 years later after that. Now listen to these numbers. Going into that battle, Mark Anthony has 60,000 troops, 480 ships. 60,000 troops, 480 ships. Octavian has 80,000 troops and 400 ships. So he's got more soldiers, fewer ships. And both of them each had 12,000 horsemen, 12,000. And so here's this huge battle, and primarily it becomes a sea battle. And Mark Anthony is losing. Octavian is winning. 
and Cleopatra sees what's happening. So she gets out of there, and she uh, hightails it back to Alexandria, and the battle is lost. Mark Anthony is not killed, though, in the battle, so he, he follows, and he follows her back to Egypt, and he gets real down. He's real depressed. Well, Octavian is known as one, and he knows he cannot allow Mark and Anthony to continue to live. So he follows him back to Alexandria with his troops. And there's a battle there. Octavian wins the battle. And now Mark Anthony hears that Cleopatra is dead. And so he takes a knife and tries to commit suicide. He's mortally wounded. Somebody finds him. Uh, they tell him she's not dead. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to keep, I mean, that, that one fact. <laughs> they drag his body over to the room where she is, and according to history, she dies in her, in, he dies in her arms. She realizes it's over. She knows Octavian is coming. He's going to take her back to Rome and humiliate her. So he, she asks her maids to bring in a fruit basket with poisonous snakes, and she takes one of those snakes, puts it to her breast, and is bitten and dies. So they're finished. All right, Octavian then, he goes back to Rome, and, and now it's 31 B.C., and this is the beginning of what we call the Roman Empire. Though I've used that term, this is really the beginning of the Roman Empire. Uh, he's the supreme. He is the first, the uh, premier citizen of the Roman Empire. Now, it's, it's, it's very interesting that in 8 B.C., Octavian had the Roman Senate change the name of the month uh, Quintilis, the seventh month, to July to honor Julius Caesar. And he also has the name changed from Octavian, changes his name from Octavian to Augustus Caesar. Uh, and then he changes the name of the eighth month from Sextilis to August in honor of himself. So July, when you write that, that's in honor of Julius Caesar and August uh, in honor of Augustus Caesar, Octavian. So that's how we got our calendar. Actually, the final part of how we got the calendar happened in 1582 where Pope Gregory the 13th came up with the Gregorian calendar that we use today that has leap years and so forth. Um, now, what does all this have to do about Christmas? <laughs> Has anybody asked that question of themselves yet? <clears throat> Chip losing it right here. I mean, has he spent himself buying Christmas presents into oblivion? Has he lost his mind? Is, or what? Uh, trust me, I know what I'm doing, okay? Now, here's what's interesting about this. Recalls that God had given this prophecy back in Micah. Now, something's going to happen in the little country of Israel. And God had set forth this prophecy through Micah, who had lived in 700 B.C. So in 700 B.C., God gave a prophecy to Micah uh, and told him to write it down so that his people, the Jews, would know what to do. He said, I'm going to send you a ruler who will be born in this tiny obscure little place, village is almost an overstatement, called Bethlehem. Now, seven years before that happened. Now, you try that on for size. I mean, think about what would 700 years 
from now, but it's 2,710. You tell me where one of your relatives is going to be born and in what city. In the whole world, pick a city, and that's where they're going to be born. That, that's what this prophecy is. Uh, now, that's what I read to you before, uh, where it said that it will be in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, of the tribe of Judah. Judah was one of the tribe sons of Jacob, whose name was later changed to, to Israel. Uh, so that's where the, the nation of Israel would come from. Judah was one of the boys. He would be ruler in Israel. And so God set forth this prophecy. And how would God bring this about? How would God bring about that the Messiah would be born in that little bitty town of Bethlehem? Well, he decided he would elevate the person of Octavian to the position of supreme ruler of the Roman Empire to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Can God do that? Sure he can. Um, so God basically is saying, I'm going to give this nation to Octavian to be ruler, to be dictator, to be monarch. God says in Daniel 4, he sets kingdoms, uh, over, he sets rulers over kingdoms and so forth. And I think he did this because he had decreed hundreds of years before where the Messiah would be born. Now, there's Joseph, there's Mary, but there's a problem. Even after she had received the message from the angel that she would, be, would conceive by the Holy Spirit after the angel appeared to Joseph and said, take her to be your wife, that which is conceived within her is of the Holy Spirit and so forth. But there's still a problem about the birth of the coming Messiah. And that is they lived in the north. And Bethlehem was in the south. So how do they get there? Why would they go there? I mean, who hears of, well, let's say you've always lived in Macon. And here's a young mom-to-be and she and her husband are in Macon. And they're going to have a baby They say, you know, you know, I just want to go about 70 miles south. What's 70 miles south? Is Tifton about 70 miles south? Let's go to Tifton and have a baby. No one would do that. I mean, do you know anybody in Tifton? you have parents there or grandparents? No, 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 no. Let's just go to Tifton. Well, that, the last thing you do if you're expecting a baby is, is, is leave your, your, your family and your, your position and so forth, everything that you need right there. So how does God bring that about? Luke tells us. A decree goes forth from Caesar Augustus. Who was Caesar Augustus? It's our old buddy Octavian. There he is. He sends forth a decree that he wants everybody to sign up in his empire. He wants to know who is who and where they live. Now, why would they do that? Well, that's how they would conscribe for the army. That's how they decided taxation, same as we do today, knowing who lived where, how many people and so God said over 700 years before the Messiah came that he would be born in Bethlehem because Joseph and Mary would never think about moving out of Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. But that's where his business, because, I mean, that's where Joseph's business was in Bethlehem. That's where he, where he works, I mean, in Nazareth. So God elevates this man, Octavian, to send forth the decree. It was a distance of about 70 miles. Um, if all went well, it could take as long as a week to make the journey. And then we have the appearance of the angels to the shepherds, and God sets up this whole thing. 
so that Octavian would become Caesar and order the Senate. Now, why has God done this? Just in the last few moments I have. Galatians, the passage we read a moment ago in Galatians says, God does this. He brought about at the proper time the sending of the Son to redeem us. That's the phrase in verse 5. To redeem us. To redeem means to buy back, to purchase. It was language of of the slave trade where a person's freedom could be purchased. And God says we're all slaves, either to sin or to God. We all serve somebody, and so we need to be redeemed from under the law. The Geneva Study Bible put it this way, the concept of redemption comes with it from the institution of slavery. In both the Jewish and Greco-Roman worlds, a slave could buy his freedom or someone else could buy it for him by paying a redemption price to the owners. The price of our redemption was paid by the Father in the blood of His Son and by the Son in giving His life as a ransom for many. So the first reason He sent Christ at the proper time was to redeem us, and the second reason is that we might receive the adoption as sons. So God's providence just, just does not just work in major world events. It applies to every detail of your life and my life that you must believe you are not here, and I mean you are not at this luncheon by accident. That you were born in this era and have the opportunity to hear the gospel is not accident. That's not coincidence. Or have you realized that the God who brought about the birth of his son at just the right time is also in work in you? So that's what it means to be redeemed, to believe in Jesus the one who not only was born of a virgin so that he would have a perfect life, he did not inherit a sin nature, nature, but then he became our substitute and died for us. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's the meaning, you might say, of the birth of Christ is our redemption. You and I are slaves, are, are headed to an eternity apart from God, but he has sent his son to buy us off the, the slave, the slave block. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the redemption that we can have through faith in Christ, your Son. Thank you that even as your word says, at the proper time, at the right time, you brought forth your Messiah. And how you even used pagan uh, rulers, uh, those who may not have acknowledged you as the true God, they were instruments in your hand. to to bring about your will, and we thank you for that. At the same time, we recognize you still do that. So give us confidence and trust in you, especially in difficult times that we may experience personally or even in the world, uh, that we might uh, submit to you and not grow bitter, uh, not be angry uh, or uh, disillusioned, uh, but seek to follow you in all things. In Christ's name.